0: going to start today with our, our scripture reading is Luke chapter 13 verses 10 through 17. Um, if you want to grab one of the pew Bibles, you can. If you want to read it off your phone, you can. It was also up here right as well. That wasn't as cool as I thought it would be. Uh, Luke chapter 13 verses 10 through 17. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and a woman was there who'd been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then shouldn't this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things that he was doing. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. The Easterland Paradox is where we're going to start today. It's an interesting observation. It was made by a former UPenn economist Richard Easterlin. Anybody know Richard Easterlin? Best buds with Richard? No, nope, nobody? Okay, good. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, not good, I don't know, it's irrelevant, but good to know, I guess. In 1974, he observed that, societally speaking, as the standard of living increased, as the standard of living increased, relative and subjective happiness decreased. So as we got more money and better life, then happiness decreases. Or in the words of that like, eminent scholar, Biggie Smalls, "More money, mo' problems, <laughs> right? It's true. It's hard for us to understand why it's true though. So um, research was conducted, various people try to understand that question, why? Why is it that after a certain point, the more money you have, the more stuff you have, the better your state of living is, why are you not as happy? Why does happiness actually decrease? Like you get less happy. The more stuff you have, the more money you have. Billionaires are the least happy people in the world. Why is that? So, some uh, Easterlin's uh, theory, actually, his idea was that perhaps it was social comparison. Right? You've heard the old proverb, "Comparisons, the thief of joy." For that. Right, when you start comparing your life to someone else's life, then you're like, hmm, maybe it sounds good. And so his theory was that the more money you had, the more like initially you compared yourself to like your peers or to your now what you believe to be social inferiors who had less than you. And so he said, you know what, I'm, I'm good, I'm doing great. But then over time you realize, huh, I got a lot more stuff. But that person's got a newer model, you know, Lexus than I do. Huh, I'm going to get a nicer one. There's always a nicer car or there's always a nicer boat, or there's always a nicer jet <laughs> that someone has, you know, and now we're getting into the realm, like, way beyond anything that I'm familiar with, All right? But there's always more, and someone always has more, and someone's always better at stuff than you are. You're not going to be the best. So that was his idea. It was his comparison. Uh, psychologist Gene Twangy, who wrote a really good book that you might consider reading, if you're into that, um, about the current youngest generation. She called it iGen, people born after about 2007, 2005, 2007. She wrote, her take was a little different. Her idea was that part of the reason that people are so unhappy is because of how we spend our time. This is what she said. Um, Do I have this up here? Oh, I've had so much up here. That's Richard Easterland, by the way. I didn't put my slide cues in here for some reason. That's okay. That's Biggie Smalls. (laughs) No money, no problems. It's true. That's both of them side by side. <laughs> I feel like I'm doing the uh, the thing like after a uh, after like a trip, you know, like here's me at the waterfall. Here's me. Here's another picture. Gene Twain, you said this. Thus, the large amount of time, she's speaking specifically about adolescents here, the large amount of time adolescents spend interacting with electronic devices may have direct links to unhappiness and or may have displaced time once spent on more beneficial activities leading to declines in happiness. It is not as certain if adults have also begun to spend less time interacting face-to-face and less time sleeping. Thus, the fundamental shift in how adolescents spend their leisure time Um, is showing a marked decline in adolescent well-being after 2011. It may also explain some of the decline in happiness among adults since 2000, though this conclusion is less certain. Going forward, individuals and organizations focused on improving happiness may turn their attention to how people spend their leisure time. For Twangy, the decline in happiness is due in no small part to how technology has changed our lives and taken our attention and not necessarily for the better I think it's a compelling idea and something that we need to spend some time with. So one more kind of um, interesting observation. Scientists and, um, and philo- philosophers use this concept known as a singularity, anybody familiar with this? Okay, that's good. It's all right. We'll, we'll share. Um, the singularity is described as, quote, a hypothetical future point in time at which the technological growth becomes uncontrollable and irreversible, resulting in unforeseeable changes to human civilization. In a very technical sense, they're talking about when computers are better than humans. Um, but in a broad sense, it's more like, you know, so think like Terminator or The Matrix. Anybody? couple people. You know what I'm talking about, right? When the, when the machines take over. That's the idea. But in a quite specific sense, it's the point at which technology has irreversibly changed human beings. And I think part of what we've talked about in the series and part of what I would argue is that Technology has already irreversibly changed human beings. When you think about how we spend our time, what we give our attention to, what matters to us, how we would survive without different kinds of technology. So it's just a consideration. But all that to say, what I think is particularly important is that all of this gets at the idea of how people spend their time and what they give their attention to really does matter. Like, it really does make a difference. And that's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. And so to summarize the series, I wanted to, uh, to wrap up um, with just a summary. That was like a really bad sentence. I'm sorry. I apologize that you had to hear that. Um, to wrap this up, I'm going to give a summary. That was better. But you didn't care. That's okay. So we started with this idea that the first act of love is the giving of attention. That what you pay attention to matters. And that what you pay attention to is the person that you become. So when Jesus commands his people, as was in keeping with the Old Testament, the the greatest commandment, the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the commandment. So how do you do it? Very practically. What's the first step? first step is you just got to pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention to God. Pay attention to the people around you. Pay attention. But what you pay attention to is the person you become. So if you're paying attention to God, then what are you going to become? You're going to become like him. Right, which is the invitation of the gospel to grow in Christ-likeness. Uh, if you pay attention to, I don't know, Twitter, I mean, what are you going to become? You're going to become Twitter. God help us, right? You know? So what you pay attention to really does matter. The second part of this, and similarly, is that your way of life or your rule of life is getting you the exact results that you're getting in your life right now. So to, to parse that out a little bit, is like the way that you live your life is producing what's actually happening in your life. If you're tired, burned out, worn out, stressed out, overwhelmed, exhausted, our tendency is to blame all the stuff happening around us, right? But it's like that wonderful hymn that we sang this morning, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. It's not so much about the circumstances as it is about the way that you are living your life and carrying your life. It's not the circumstances are hard. It's not that they're not irrelevant, because they're not irrelevant, but it's just that the way that you carry your life makes a difference. And sometimes what needs to happen is you just need to make some changes to the way you're living your life. How you get up in the morning, how you go to bed at night, how you spend your day, what you think about, what you pay attention to. Little stuff that makes a big difference. Whether or not you're keeping Sabbath, which is one of the other things that we talked about as well. That in a world that is 24-7, 365, Jesus gives us the opportunity... To live twenty-four-six, to take a day off because it's okay. You're not in charge of running the universe, and you don't have to be. You were never made to be. That God made the Sabbath for you. That's Jesus' wonderful and illuminating contribution to that fourth commandment. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's Mark two. The Sabbath was made for you. And when you look at Jesus' activity in the Gospels on the Sabbath, what's he doing? He's healing over and over and over again. We read that scripture earlier, which we're going to get more into in a second, but he's healing. He's healing people on the Sabbath. Why is that? Because the Sabbath is a day for healing. Healing your bodies, healing your mind, healing your heart, healing your soul. you got to take a day off. And, and what's interesting is that like it's not optional. I, I've observed it in my own life, and I think it's generally true. Um, it actually really interestingly aligns with like, Old Testament, like the prophet, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, that if you don't take a Sabbath, if you don't honor these commands of God, well, they're going to take you, (laughs) whether you like it or not. Um, Back in, like, Jeremiah, right? And I'm not going to get this perfectly right, but that's okay. You're not going to hold me to it, are you? Okay, so I'm paraphrasing. But the idea was that the people of Israel did not practice and honor the festivals and the times for celebration that God gave them. They didn't take sabbatical years every seven years. They didn't um, honor his jubilee years every 70 years. They didn't do this stuff. So what did he say? He said, I'm going to exile you so the land can have its Sabbath rest. You're not keeping my Sabbaths appropriately? Fine. I'm going to exile you from the land so the land can have the respect and the rest that it deserves because you're bad leaders. It's essentially what he says, paraphrasing, but you get the idea, right? The Sabbath is important, and it's important because it's essential for your soul. Um, none of this is a silver bullet, so I want to be clear. None of what we talked about is like, if you just do this one thing, then it's going to change your life. Here are three tips that will improve you dramatically. This isn't what it's about, but it is about reorienting our life around Jesus and his kingdom. And trusting that he is Savior and he is Lord of all. (laughs) He made this good world and he invites you to live in it. So, all that to say, that's why I find this particular story of Jesus on the Sabbath to be a really compelling illustration of my larger point in this series. Um, As Walter Brueggemann said, I just want to highlight that quote. You were looking at it, I wasn't reading it. But people who keep the Sabbath live all seven days differently. That's really what we're going for, right? We want to be a people who live differently. Like, that is the witness that followers of Jesus have to offer the world. People who live differently because they are different. Right? Not just about trying harder, but that God transforms you from the inside out and that naturally you live differently is a countercultural witness to the kingdom of God. Okay. So, here's our, uh, here's our lines from Luke 13. I just want to walk through this and, and talk about what's happening here. So we're told that on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and couldn't straighten up at all. So, um, basically, what we're told is that Jesus is doing his thing. Uh, it was, we we're told in the Gospels that it was his common practice to go into the synagogue on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, he would gather with other believers. He would meet with them. Uh, they would, he would teach commonly on the Sabbath, and often he would heal. But Jesus is doing his thing. On the Sabbath. And a woman is there who's been crippled for 18 years. She just shows up. Um, I think this is an important point for us. Um, if you think about what Jesus is doing on the Sabbath, you think about what the posture of the woman is who's just showing up at the, the gathering on the Sabbath. If you come to church and have zero expectation of Jesus being there, then you're going to get that. But if you come to the gathering of the church and you expect more than just sermons and music, but you expect the presence of Jesus and you expect healing, then you're going to get it. If you don't, then you won't. Jesus is there, he shows up. Like, basically and simply, that's it. So how might our church, how might churches in general be different if we showed up with an expectation of meeting Jesus and not just hearing music that we may or may not like and not just having prayers prayed over us that we may or may not like and not just listening to some really annoying pastor that we may or may not like, right? That's me. Um, What if we expected to meet Jesus there? Let that linger for a second. So here's this woman, right? She shows up. She is crippled. She is crippled physically, we're told. She is crippled spiritually by a spirit. (laughs) That's what that means. Crippled in in body and in spirit and in soul. And very often sometimes those things can go together. Um, What's this woman doing? Right? She shows up. She just shows up. So, so far, are you with me? This is not very complicated. You're all very intelligent, wise people. Everybody's just showed up. But that's really half the battle. You know? Just being present to what's going on, paying attention, right? Posturing yourself to actually encounter the presence of God, being still enough to listen to what he's actually saying, not distracting yourself into oblivion, but just actually being present to what's happening. And so in the midst of this, what do we we see next? Jesus, what? Well, he calls her forward and says to her, Woman, you were set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. So, what is Jesus doing, right? He sees her, he notices, he pays attention to her. You know, talk about a God who loves you. This is just like some kind of vague concept that's just floating out there. Like, he actually pays attention to you, he pays attention to your life, he pays attention when you're upset, he pays attention to you when things are not going your way. He pays attention to you when that, like, little thing happens that you're, like, really excited about. You're just like, oh, that's amazing, but no one else cares. Jesus is paying attention. That's what it means when we say that God loves you, right, is that you actually matter to him. It's just kind of some vague, like, sometimes we talk about with people, like, oh, well, I got to love him, but I don't like him. Jesus actually likes you. (laughs) You know? Think about that. So Jesus sees her, he notices her, he calls her forward and says to her, woman, you are set free. So he doesn't just see her, but he pays complete attention to her. He calls her, he speaks to her, he touches her, and she's set free. There's a whole level and body of interaction of Jesus with this woman. And why is it? What did this woman do? She showed up. What did this woman do? She showed up. That's it. She just showed up. She showed up with an expectation of Jesus being there. She showed up with an expectation that Jesus would actually be able to heal her. She showed up with an expectation that Jesus might, I don't know, maybe be important. So maybe we'll be around him. It would be around other people who like him, you know? She showed up. This is the power of the kingdom in daily life. That if you just show up, with expectation that Jesus sees you, he pays attention to you, he speaks words of life over you and to you, he touches you, and he will heal you. Sometimes we like to kind of mythologize that into like it's just this, it's always going to be just this power from heaven lightning bolt, just, that was a bad snap, but you know what I mean, right? It's just like this just explosion, it's just a bah! right and some of us grew up in religious traditions where that was the expectation that every change in your life had to be like fire from heaven lightning and if it doesn't happen like that then it ain't real but the reality of the kingdom in your daily life is that you show up moment by moment day by day sometimes that happens and it's amazing when it does and we can bless God and praise God for it it's just so incredible but very often, it's day by day, moment by moment, posturing yourself to receive the presence of Jesus in your daily life. And that matters so much, just choosing to have that posture in your life. Right? That's what a way of life or a rule of life or just intentionally organizing your life around Jesus, that's what it's all about. Okay? So predictably, and not unexpectedly, it's caused an issue, the synagogue leader, we hear this, indignant great word indignant because Jesus had healed on the sabbath how dare he the synagogue leader said to the people there are six days for work come and be healed on those days not on the sabbath at first glance he's got a point right like come on seven days one day rest six days show up one day rest it's pretty easy right 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 it's pretty easy Six days come to be healed. One day, take it off as a Sabbath. Come on those other days. Don't show up on the Sabbath and start causing a scene and making a ruckus because you just got to show up and then stop, he says. And we're told that he's indignant. Well, I think we'll see there's at least two holes in his argument um, that I find particularly problematic. So the first one is this. He's got a case of misdirected anger. Surely none of you have ever had this before. I know. Without a doubt, you've never had this, right? Right? So the synagogue leader is angry at who? What, what's he? Indignant because Jesus had healed, right? So what does he do? He yells at the people. Surely, like, I, I've never done this before, I promise. I've never had a situation where, like, I was upset or irritated about something, and the girls were just, like, you know, being four and eight, and I never was like, girls, knock it off! Never have I done that this morning, right? Surely I didn't, right? Well, we've all, we've all done that, right? We've all been there. So he's got a case of misdirected anger, which is not insignificant, because his misdirected anger is actually showing what's going on at a deeper level, right? He's angry at Jesus. He yells at the people, in part because he misunderstands whose power it is. He has a case of misdirected anger because he also has a case of misunderstood power. Who exactly is doing the work in this healing? See, what the problem is that the synagogue leader assigns it to the people, right? Says, "Quit showing up to be healed on the Sabbath. Stop it. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath." Ah, see, there's the crux of it. His expectations is the people. See, they don't get it. He has a case of misdirected anger because he misunderstands the power, which is why Jesus says what he does, right? In the very next. This parable that he tells. He cuts to the heart of the issue. I put this in the message uh, paraphrase because I like the way it expresses it because what you don't get in the NIV which we read is that there is a same Greek word that's used when he's talking about untying the donkey. He's talking about untying the woman and this says it. So I'm going to read it. You can follow along. This is what Jesus says. Each Sabbath every one of you regularly unties your coward donkey from its stall, leads it out for water, and thinks nothing of it. So why isn't it all right for me to untie this daughter of Abraham and lead her from the stall where Satan has had her tied these 18 years? Who's the one who's doing something on the Sabbath? Right? It's not the person who's, it's not the woman who was crippled for 18 years. And so sometimes when we read that story, I just want to address this part because we misinterpret it. Sometimes when we read this parable and the story of Jesus, we think that Jesus is saying something to the effect of, okay, well, it's okay for you to do work on the Sabbath by leading out your donkey, so it's okay for me to do work on the Sabbath because I'm healing someone, and someone is greater than some donkey, you know? So we, like, scales, person more important, right? That's how we tend to read it. But see, when we read it like that, we're missing the point. Right, what's he saying? He's saying, okay, on the Sabbath, you have a donkey. You might remember back to this, I'll just... In, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, um, the command is to do no work on the six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day to the Sabbath of the Lord, your God, keep it holy. You shall do no work, neither you nor your servants nor your animals. Okay? Keep that in mind. Jesus is a sharp guy. Okay, so what's happening here? So he's saying, okay, okay, you rabbis, you synagogue leaders, you untie your donkey, you lead it to the water on a Sabbath day, and then you take it back, and yet you're keeping the commandment, Right? They're not working. You're not working. No one's doing work. He says, so it is on the Sabbath as well that I can untie this woman, lead her to living water, she can be healed, and then we go back and no one's done any work either. See, here's the point of the story. You're the donkey. (laughs) You're the donkey. The thing that you have to do, the thing that you need to do to experience healing in your life is just to be postured, waiting, and, and at a fundamental level, it's just to be thirsty. You just have to be thirsty. Like, that's all the donkey brings to the equation is that it's thirsty. And it allows itself to be led. That's what Jesus is driving at here. That all this stuff that we've been talking about, about paying attention and about um, your way of life and your rule of life and kind of intentionally structuring your life, talking about Sabbath and these various practices that we do, those are really important. But I don't want you to miss here that it is entirely your responsibility to make this happen. Now, you have a role to play. and It is a vitally important role. You got to be thirsty, and you got to be hungry. And if you don't have that, then Jesus isn't going to help you. And I think that's one of the problems that we have with people in our world. This is something we've talked about a lot. But um, when people aren't hungry and they aren't thirsty, you can't make them drink, right? And like we know people, I know people, you know people, I know you know people. They have zero desire for anything of any importance, right? Zero desire for the kingdom. Zero desire for God. Zero desire to think of anything remotely moral or ethical at all. Zero desire. Seems like the most desire they have is just like, I don't know, for TikTok, right? Like, God help them and bless them, and it's fun, but you get the idea, right? That there's no desire. And so how do we pray? We say, well, Lord, just save them. We're praying for the Lord to untie them, but they're not even thirsty, So let's pray that the Lord would give them thirst, that when he actually does untie them, they'll actually drink. See the point? It's a slight shift, but it's really important. That's what Jesus is getting at in this parable. That's what we're getting at in the story. And so all of this matters because grace is a gift. It's not opposed to effort. Effort's really important, but it is opposed to earning. Effort alone isn't the point. Our effort has to be directed Godward with an awareness that we're not responsible for the outcome. You need to show up. You need to position yourself. There are things you need to do. But at the end of the day, and ultimately, it is about Jesus untying you and leading you to water. And all that you ultimately have to bring is, are are you hungry and thirsty? Are you expecting him to lead you out to water? The donkey's not kicking against the stall trying to get out because it's not sure if the master's going to come and untie it or not, so maybe it has to go out and go get its own water. No, 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 it just waits until the master unties it and leads it to water. It's like uh, William Barclay wrote, and uh, I like this, so I'll share it with you. The Holy Spirit comes to us and takes away our inadequacies and enables us to cope with life. The Holy Spirit substitutes victorious for defeated living. Now a person who has eliminated God never has any time of the day or the week when he waits upon God and listens for God. He would think such a time is a waste of time, and we cannot receive the Holy Spirit unless we wait in silence and in expectation and in prayer for the Holy Spirit to come to us. The simple fact is that the world is too busy to give the Holy Spirit a chance to enter in. The simple fact is that the world is too busy to give the Holy Spirit a chance to enter in. For the Holy Spirit gate crashes no man's heart. He waits to be received. I had a professor in seminary, his name was Bob Tuttle. He was an interesting guy. Bob Tuttle used to talk about how the Holy Spirit was like wind, right? Jesus says this, the Spirit is like wind. That means that wind always moves from high pressure to low. So if you want the Spirit to move into a situation, you got to what? Lower the pressure. Sometimes we make these really high-pressure situations and we expect God to do something, but it's just lower the pressure. That's why sometimes the best kind of evangelistic next step you can make for someone who you really care about, who's really far from the Lord, who has no hunger and thirst for them, Maybe it's not to invite them to a church service. Maybe invite them over for dinner. You know? Really. Lower the pressure and let the Holy Spirit come moving in. The other part of that, too, is that I think of it like, it's like a jar. Think of your life like a jar of dirt. I mean, I guess you could use anything. I don't know why I thought of dirt. I mean, it says something about, like, my view of humanity. I don't know. Just, you can psychoanalyze me if you need to. But think of your life like a jar of something. Dirt. And when it's full, there's no air in it, right? Think of a mason jar. You got the lid screwed on tight, no air. Vacuum sealed. If you unscrew the lid, you remove some of the dirt, or green beans, or apple butter, or jam. Some of you are much more optimistic than me, and so you've thought of other things. You remove some of whatever's in the jar. There's room for what? There's room for air. Some of us in our lives, we we need to unpack it a little bit. You need to make some space in your life. Put a little bit of margin in your calendar. Quit making it so full. Because at the end of the day, it's not about how much stuff we can do or how much, you know, we get accomplished. It's about allowing room for the Holy Spirit to move in and do the work that God needs to and wants to and desires to do. And it's about us just simply making the space and the time with the expectation that he'll do what he needs to, you know? That's really what we've been talking about the last few weeks. And so I'd just like you to think about it. And then we're going to open up for some questions and comments, okay? Because I said we would, and I think that we can do that. Um, Here's the question. What adjustments do I need to make to my life, to my schedule, to my habits, to my relationships, to create more margin for God? What adjustments do I need to make to my life to create more margin for God to be present in it? In like kind of a conscious way. It's hard. It's not easy. Um, but I, I will just say, like, as I have done this and I'm still working on it, so don't hear me saying, like, oh, I've got everything all figured out. None of you thought that anyway. Maybe like two of you thought that. I don't. But as as you do it, like it is worth it. God will show up in ways that you don't really expect. And he'll move into the white space, he'll move into the margin, and he'll do what he needs to do. So what adjustments do you need to make to your life? To allow God the space to enter in. To be like this woman who just shows up expecting something meaningful to happen. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to open up for questions, comments. Okay? Okay, great. Father, we thank you for um, your word. We thank you for the teaching that you give us, Jesus. We thank you that you offer us life and truth. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you come into those margins. You come into those spaces. You fill us um, in the places where we're empty. I ask that today um, you would just bring to mind for all of us, each of us, whatever it is that we need to do. Odds are there's, there's a good chance for a lot of us that we know maybe there's a next step that we need to take. And if we can't think of that, then Holy Spirit, I ask that you would give that to us. Bring it to our minds. Just let that thought be what comes into our heads. um, That this is what you would have us to do in obedience to your prompting, in obedience to your word, um, a next step in our discipleship and in following you. Maybe one change we need to make. Maybe it's a big change. Maybe it's a really small change. Maybe it's just how we start our days. Maybe it's a little less time on our devices intentionally. Maybe it's how we end our days with a little more thoughtful intention into unwinding and and slowing down, not just crashing into bed. Maybe it's inserting a little more time for for prayer or for scripture. Maybe it's taking Sabbath seriously. Holy Spirit, we invite you to do that work in our lives and entrust that if it's not right now, it will be today. And if it's not today, it'll be this week. We give it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.